0: You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. "'Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you.' And he said to them, "'What do you want me to do for you?' And they said to him, "'Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory.' Jesus said to them, "'You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized?' And they said to him, "'We are able.' And Jesus said to them, "'The cup that I drink, you will drink.' And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those who, for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called to them and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord are over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. And immediately, he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. Okay, so talking about uh, hiking, Labor Day morning, which was a couple weeks ago, Michelle and I woke up with zero plans for a Monday, which is very rare for us. And so we're kind of going back and forth, what are we going to do? And so we eventually decided, sort of, you know, spur of the moment to go hiking, uh, but this trail that supposedly had this amazing swimming hole off the, the, the Yuba River. And so, you know, we're not really, I wouldn't consider ourselves spontaneous people, but we just spontaneously pack up the car, pack up the kids, pack up the food, and just and, and drive up that direction. But we didn't really know exactly what we were getting into. So when we approached the trailhead, where the trailhead began, what we found is that it actually begins with a fork. An east trail and a a west trail now luckily there was a group of people coming just as we kind of approached uh, and who were able to kind of give us a little bit of direction and we asked them the question what what is the way to get down to the water and so they said you don't you don't want to go the way that we just came this is just merely a hiking trail you want to go the other way and if you hike for about 15 minutes you'll get to the water hole so we followed their advice, and we began walking, and uh, it, it just didn't seem right. <laughs> uh, probably because I was a little bit cranky, too, at this moment. But I, I began to realize, like, wait a minute, this guy potentially was inebriated at this moment. And I do recall hearing him barking as he approached us, and start, I started to begin to kind of think through these, these things, And uh, so we're walking on this trail, and we can hear people laughing and having fun off in the distance, but it's sort of like taunting us as we're walking in the heat and like shooing away mosquitoes, and the path doesn't seem to be heading towards the trail. It seems to be kind of veering off, and about an hour into the journey, we realized that we had been led astray. And if you know anything about hiking with children, it's like dog years. So it's like one hour is seven hours with kids. We have spent, essentially spent our entire day uh, moving in the wrong direction. So what we had to do is we had to, just, we had to determine we'd been led astray and turned back and hike the, you know the hour or seven hours for the kids back to the beginning of our journey. Now, we only came to find out afterwards that it was a good thing that we had turned around because the path that we were on did not leave to the, uh, lead to the family-friendly swimming hole, but it actually led to the nudist swimming hole, which adds a whole new meaning to swimming, well, anyways, so, so there was a moment where we were reminded that not, you got that, uh, there was a moment, I just remembered that the fifth and sixth graders were with us, I apologize. <laughs> um, So, okay, there was a moment where I realized that not all paths are the right path. And that's, I guess, what I'm trying to say. And not all guides are the right guides. Uh, The Gospel of Mark has really been highlighting this, this theme. There's really three sections of Mark, and we're concluding the second section, that has really been highlighting this theme of the way or the path, the way to life, the way to freedom, the way to enter into the kingdom, really the path of following Jesus Christ, And this morning, here in Mark, uh, that path comes into focus with, with clarity. And what we discover, once again, according to verse 32, is that the disciples are on the road again. And they were on the road, verse 32. So that kind of frames where we are in this story. But so far, we know that they've been on the go from town to town. This is not the first mention that the disciples are following Jesus on the road But so far, it hasn't been clear to them, the disciples, or us, the reader, where that road is leading. Jesus says, follow me, and they're like, okay, we're we're in, and they follow him. But the big question that's been lingering is, where are they going? Here in chapter 10, Mark makes it clear where this road is leading. Jesus is leading them into Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Now, that's going to be a very important theme as we uh, look at chapter 11 next week. Jesus is leading them into Jerusalem. Now, perhaps this is why they're experiencing this strange mix of emotions uh, that's occurring here. Look at me, verse 32, and it says, And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. Amazed and afraid. They're amazed probably because for many, many generations, uh, the people of God were very hopeful for a Messiah that was going to come and bring freedom and liberation from their oppressors. There were many centuries where the path into Jerusalem was seen as the victory march into Zion. They're amazed because they, they see that it appears that Christ is mounting his attack. Jesus is preparing this sort of triumphal entry into Jerusalem. They're amazed, but they're also afraid because this Jesus keeps talking about death more than triumph. He's talking about surrender more than victory. And so he's going into the battle with what seems to be a very losing strategy. I can only imagine what a TV interview would look like in this moment. You're like, they're catching up to Jesus. Like, Jesus, can you real quick tell us what is your strategy once you get into Jerusalem? And Jesus is like, I already told you, die. (laughs) Afraid. What What is he doing? In fact, here, now for a third time, Jesus has reiterated his plan to be delivered over, condemned, and killed. Explicitly, look at me in Verse 34. Speaking of the Son of Man, they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. This is Jesus' plan to overcome evil and set his people free. Jesus has said, I've already told you how I'm going to do it. Amazed and afraid. This this may be... um, a really fitting description of many of our experiences of following Jesus Christ. Amazed and afraid. We, we experience the wonder of what is possible now that Jesus is in our lives and in the world, but we're very afraid of what that may involve. We are thrilled by the idea of life in Jesus Christ. We are terrified by this concept of dying to ourselves. We are amazed by Jesus' promise to bring freedom as we come under his reign. But if we're to be honest, we're very fearful. Every single one of us is fearful to hand over control to anyone. We're amazed by the promise of gaining everything in Jesus Christ, but if we're to be honest, we're fearful about the call to come empty-handed before Christ. I'm reminded of a portion of the hymn Amazing Grace where it sort of captures this paradox. "'Twas grace, that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. Grace taught me to fear, and yet grace relieved my fear. See, to be a Christian is to exist in this strange mix of wonder and fear. The the disciples, like many of us, are beginning to think, where on earth is Jesus leading us? What is he doing? This path used to make so much sense this path of following Jesus, I've never had more clarity in my life than when I began to follow Jesus. And now years later, down the road, we're sitting here thinking, what on earth is Christ doing? Where is he leading us? Where is this path going? Disillusioned, confused, afraid. But Mark makes a very important note here in verse 32. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. If you have the NIV translation, it reads, with Jesus leading the way. Now, why is that important? Because it tells us that this is a path that Jesus goes before them. This is a path where Jesus goes before us. See, the, the, the prophet Isaiah spoke of the Messiah coming and making a way in the wilderness And this is what we see here occurring in Mark. This is a statement about who Jesus is. It's not just telling us. Jesus isn't just telling us the way to go as a teacher. He's not just showing us the way to go as an example. Jesus is making the way to go as a Savior. Going before them. Leading the path. And so today, as we linger in that mix of amazement and fear, what I want to call us to do is to consider this one that goes before us. The same Jesus that goes before the disciples promises to go before us. Who is this Jesus, and why should we follow him? And as we consider who Jesus is, I want to I look at three things from this passage, that Jesus is our humble servant, that Jesus is the holy sacrifice, and third, Jesus is the healing savior. He's a humble servant, a holy sacrifice, and a healing savior. Let's look first at that Christ is uh, this humble servant. Look at me in verses 36 through 37. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. I love that. They're like, don't worry about what we're asking. We just need the commitment first. (laughs) And he said to them, which I find very patient of Jesus, What do you want me to do for you? And this is what they said to him. Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. No big deal. So Jesus has previously told the disciples, I believe it was actually the last verse we we left off at last week. Jesus told his disciples, the first will be last, the last will be first. This is the guiding principle of the kingdom of God. But what this means is that it's not about fighting to get to the front, but for the disciple of Jesus Christ, it is now a race to get to the back. This reorders our lives, this reorders our vision for life. But here we, get, here we find the disciples quite like us getting it wrong once again and now competing for first. In their minds, again, they're on the victory march to Zion. This, this is it. This is go time. This is the day of glory This is the day of triumph. Their vision of Jesus' kingdom is one that involves thrones and crowns. It's very regal. It's very powerful. Why? Because we are on the winning team. We're in the winning kingdom. In their vision of winning there, around Jesus' throne, are two seats of honor, conveniently to the left and to the right, one reserved for James, one reserved for John. See, the disciples had allowed the mindset of the ancient world to shape their view of power and position. For many centuries, throughout history, and throughout the world, the, the idea of fighting for glory was seen as virtuous and commendable. You read about the life of Alexander the Great who conquered the known world. He was commended for his desire for glory and renown. In the legend of Beowulf, the king that goes out to slay the dragon, at the very end of the story, upon his tomb, it says, of all men, he was the most hungry for glory. It was something to be commended. It was something virtuous. That is a real man. That's a real woman. Hungry for glory. I would argue that maybe some of the language of success and the terms of winning have changed for us over the last 2,000 years. But I think the principle still remains and it's one that we have not escaped yet. And the principle is life is about fighting to be on top. And this is the principle that, whether we we recognize it or not, it's probably ruling many of our lives. Guiding the decisions that we're making on an almost daily basis. Why, because like those who have gone before us, we have a hunger for glory. We have a hunger for glory. Whether you're a Christian or you're an atheist, whether you're just visiting or this is your home church, whether you're a child or an adult or man or woman, the the human soul craves glory. The human soul craves recognition and praise. The Bible tells us that it's actually a, a desire that God has built into us, but it's a desire that was intended to be satisfied in God. And what often happens is we seek to feed that hunger for glory with vanity, with with praise from people. And if we're not careful, what will end up happening is we will be like James and John, who are not only hungry for glory, but are those who come to Jesus and ask him to help us in our vain pursuit of it. Uh, Reading through this passage and preparing for this message, it made me think how many of my personal prayers have been essentially the same requests that James and John are asking of Jesus. Give me position, give me praise, give me recognition, give me power. Feed my hunger for glory. Now we may not bring a demand for thrones, but we do demand job titles and positions. We may not desire to to hold the crown, but we do strive for those little letters after our name. Many of us will not expect to kneel down and to be knighted with a sword, but we do expect to to, to receive that pat on the back, to be recognized for our accomplishments. We have that desperate uh, desire for that constant stream of praise and recognition. Pat me on the back, acknowledge me, praise me. But it's never enough. Because we have an insatiable appetite for recognition that can only be satisfied by the attention and affection of an eternal God. And what ends up happening is that hunger, sought to be satisfied elsewhere, will just make us more ravenous. Desiring more, more glory, more recognition, more praise, it's never enough unless it's satisfied in God. You see, we, we, we may think that we have sort of moved beyond, uh, I, I believe it's, uh, C.S. Lewis talked about this like snobbery that we have when we look back in the history books that we have, you know, we've moved past what the people have, before us have done. But if you think about it, we may be less barbaric in our actions, in our glory seeking, but if you think about and consider our language, now, consider our language for describing success in our day and age in the 21st century. Some examples. How was your job interview? Did you slay it? How about this? Uh, great job today. You killed it. You just, you just killed it. You nailed it. You, you just took a sword and like stabbed it in its heart. How'd you do on that test? I crushed it. I murdered it. I destroyed it. Blood is just splattering everywhere. Think about how violent our language is. But here's the problem. The fight to be on top is almost always at the expense of others. Consider Jesus' words here in verse 42. And Jesus called them to him and he said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. Think about this, this language of conquering, crushing. To conquer means to subject. And as I've heard it said before, oftentimes when we are crushing it, there are others who are being crushed. To succeed in a manner of crushing things often means that someone is losing and being crushed underneath it. And so Jesus makes it clear in verses 43 through 45, but it shall not be so among you. Jesus is separating his church from the world. He's saying you are to live and operate and function differently, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is saying, consider me. Consider the Son of Man. And what he's telling them is why he came and what he came to do. He's telling them that he came to humbly serve and to sacrificially die. You see, when Jesus tells James and John in verse 38, you do not know what you are asking. You just do not know what you're asking for. What is he intending to mean there? See, what Jesus knows is that he's not going to be surrounded by two thrones on the day that he establishes his kingship and his reign. He knows on that day he's actually going to be surrounded by two crosses on Golgotha. It's not going to be regal. It's not going to appear to be powerful. It's going to appear as loss and surrender and death. You don't know what you're asking for, James. You do not know what you're asking for, John. You do not know what you're asking for, disciple. This is because the only way to break the cycle of crushing and to overcome evil would be to come as a humble servant. This was the only way that we could be rescued from our sinful glory hunger that only seems to bring pain into our lives and pain into this world. Think about it. Think about this. How could a pompous and proud king deliver us from the devastation of pride? It's been said before that at the core of sin is pride. How could a proud and pompous king who comes in in triumph and glory save us from such a devastating pride? The kind of king couldn't. It would have to be a king who didn't grasp for glory, but as Philippians 2 describes, emptied himself of it. It would have to be the kind of king that did not ride into Jerusalem to crush it, but as Isaiah 53 describes, in order to be crushed. Listen to the prophet Isaiah and how he describes the servant of the Lord who brings forgiveness and life into this world. and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Who goes before us? A humble servant who came to sacrificially die for us. The second thing we see here is that Jesus is, the holy sacrifice, the holy sacrifice. You see, when Jesus tells his disciples that they don't know what they're asking for, he then follows it up with a question. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And what is their response? And they said to him, we are able. Yes. But of course they would say yes. Of course they would say we're able. Because when they hear this word cup, they are likely thinking of the cup that we read of and sang of in Psalm 23. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemy. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. The cup of God's abundance where he's just pouring out heaven's riches and grace and blessing on us. And they're like, of course we can. They're holding back their excitement. They're trying to keep it cool. Jesus, yeah, we're going to have to think about it. But I, I think it's safe to say right now we are able. This isn't the cup Jesus is talking about. Throughout the Hebrew scriptures, and it's actually repeated in the New Testament as well, the cup was often the symbol of God's judgment and wrath against unrighteousness. In fact, listen elsewhere in the Psalms, Psalm 75. For in the hand of the Lord, there's a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. The wrath of God poured out on all unrighteousness. This is the cup that Jesus is preparing to drink. This is the cup that Jesus would agonize over and in the garden beg the Father to allow it to pass before him. This is the cup that Jesus has in mind. Are you able? I'm reminded of a portion of Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince where Harry and Dumbledore venture into a dark cave. And in order to find, really, the keys, one of the keys to defeating evil incarnate Voldemort. And they come to this inner portion of the cave, and they journey on this small boat across to the middle of this, uh, uh, this, this underground lake. And there on this tiny island, as the author describes, about just the same size as Dumbledore's office, they come to a stone basin. And there's this mysterious potion in the basin, and it's called the Potion of Despair. And the dilemma is that the key to defeating their enemy is at the bottom of the potion, and they just can't reach it. And so Dumbledore determines that he must drink the potion to get to it. He says, I must drink it. I must drink all of it. It is vital that I drink it down to the bottom. And he reminds Harry that the one condition that Harry could come on this journey with him was that he was required to do everything that Dumbledore asked of him. And then he tells him, you must ensure that no matter how much agony that you see me experience, no matter how much I beg for this cup to pass before me, that I drink it to the very bottom. That I drink it until every last drop is gone. And in a sense, this illustrates what we see in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The very holy son of God takes the cup for us. Here's the good news of the gospel. Jesus drinks the cup of God's wrath that was reserved for us so that we could drink the cup of God's abundance reserved for Jesus. What an exchange. We come expecting the cup of Psalm 23 and Jesus does the switcheroo. And he takes the cup of Psalm 75 and offers us the abundance of heaven. This is the great exchange of the cross. This is what Christ was preparing to accomplish for us in Jerusalem. John Stott, probably one of the best definitions I've ever found on the definition of sin and salvation, said this. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself where God uh, against God and, and puts himself where only God deserves to be. And yet God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Substitutes himself. This is really at the heart of this tiny little yet powerful word that Jesus now introduces in verse 45 as a ransom for many. A ransom. Now we probably picture something in our mind of like a child being kidnapped and then ransom money being gathered to pay off the captors. I, I, for, because I was raised up in the 80s and 90s, I always think of Mel Gibson for some reason in the movie Ransom. And so we, we have this, this picture of a cute child being taken from their parents. And it can cause us these little warm fuzzies that I was so, I was taken from my parent. And I was so valuable that God raised, you know, the price to come and and redeem me, but the idea of ransom in the first century was very different. In the first century, ransom was often the, the, the purchase of someone in slavery and often someone in prison. This is the condition that God finds us all in, whether we recognize it or not. We are not the cute child that was taken from our parents. We are the rebel. We are the rebel that has actively and willfully rebelled against God's good reign and rule in our lives and have found ourselves snared and enslaved to the power of sin and under God's judgment with a debt that is just too great for us to pay ourselves and simply overcome. And yet Jesus in his infinite love and in his infinite mercy says, here's the gospel, I will pay the debt. I will pay every last penny to set you free. And I will pay it with my own blood. The question stands, why would it cost Jesus his life? Why is blood? All the infinite riches of heaven, is there some other way? No. Psalm 49 says, truly no man can ransom another. Or give to God the price of his life for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. What that means is it couldn't just be paid by any old payment. Even a life for a life would not do. It would require nothing less than the very life of the Holy Son of God, the holy sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He was the ransom for us. And as we journey following Jesus Christ, this is something that we need to consider. This is something that we need to be reminded of constantly. How could we ever even question whether or not Jesus is trustworthy in light of what he's accomplished for us on the cross? Think think about a scenario in your mind. Could you imagine being in a situation where a family member or a friend jumped in front of a bullet to save you took a bullet for you and assuming that individual survived you would never ever ever question that person's reliability and trustworthiness again that 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 thought that memory would be seared in your mind for the rest of your life There would not be a single day where you are not reminded of that sacrificial love of that person sacrificing themselves and taking the bullet for you. And yet we have infinitely more in Jesus Christ and God help us. Somehow we forget. We forget. Somehow we begin to doubt his trustworthiness. Somehow we we begin to be afraid we fear where Jesus is leading us. Is he leading us in a good direction? Where is he leading what is this? What is going on right now? He didn't just take a bullet by standing in the way of harm. He drank the cup for us. He was the ransom for our lives. That's what we need to consider this morning. Who goes before us, the holy sacrifice, the Son of God who took on flesh and blood not only to dwell among us but to die in our place. This is a good king. This is a good king, amen? Let's look finally at the healing savior. The healing savior. Verses 46 through 47, And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples, and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, and the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of God, have mercy on me. Now, there's something to note here, and and I I love the irony, and the irony is this, that it's a blind man that sees something in Jesus that everyone else does not see, blind man that acknowledges Christ as the divine son of David, full of mercy. The disciples see Jesus as someone who's going to bring them glory and power and prestige. He's a genie in a bottle. Bartimaeus sees Jesus as the son of David, full of mercy, who brings healing into our broken lives and brings sight to the blind. The disciples do not know what they're asking. Bartimaeus does. Verse 48, and many rebuked him, telling him to be silent, shut up. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. So there's a repeating pattern that we have to acknowledge here in Mark. And here it is. Healing comes to the persistent. To the persistent. It comes to those who are not quickly discouraged and give up, but are determined to seek Jesus no matter the hurdle, no matter the cost. I love this. And he cried out all the more. His rejection, his hurdles, him being held back was fuel for his fire for Christ. The more you try to stop me, the more desire I have to seek Christ. Verses 49 through 52, and Jesus stopped and said, call him. And he called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. We don't know the tone here, but I can just imagine like, all right, get up, come on, come on. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. A blind man, um, like maybe uh, the leper or the cripple, in, in the biblical times was often, as one commentator put it, society's expendables. Every generation, every time has their expendables. It's probably not hard for us to think about our time in our city. These were the individuals that were overlooked, forgotten, and replaceable. Barnabas would have been one of them. And yet, While everyone tries to cast him off, everyone tries to silence him. You're you're a distraction to what we got going on here. We have forward momentum. We are going places. And you're not helping us to get there. Shut up. And yet Jesus stops the entire show. Catch that? this, This is a big movement. There are crowds following him. Jesus stops everything. He silences everything. And he says, call him. Call him to me. There's a Japanese form of art called kintsugi, and it means golden joinery. I believe that there'll be a picture, a projection of this. In the case of bowls, that what, the, what this form of art is, is broken pieces that are restored in a way where the cracks become the center point of the art, not the covered up part. So if you think about painting, if a painter makes a mistake, a bad brush stroke, they cover it up. If someone is sculpting the clay and they make a mistake, they they mash it and they, they begin again. But in Kintsuki art, the cracks become the focal point. The artist takes what is broken and typically discarded. It would just be throwaway. And he or she mends it back together with fine metal such as gold, giving it greater beauty than before, filling the cracks with one of the most costly and valuable substances on the face of the earth. And this is a picture of what God does in the world and a picture of what God is doing in our lives. He takes what is broken and what the world discards and he renews it and causes it to become objects of redemption and beauty. Consider this quote, our wounds and our weakness reveal our greatest strength. God is not out to make each of us a member of the power team but he's out to reveal to us the crippling power of the cross. As we die to ourselves, our rights, our strength, our positions of power, the great victory of God becomes even more evident in our lives. What he's talking about is the golden joinery of God's grace that shines all the more. As God makes beautiful things out of broken things, valuable things out of discarded things. And so let me conclude with this. After Jesus heals him, he says, okay, go your way. You're free to go. You're healed. And yet I love this in verse 52, the closing passage. It says, and he followed him on the way. Jesus said, you're free to go. Go, 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 go. And the man follows him. He doesn't go back to his former life of begging. I love the picture. He casts off his cloak it's a picture of, of men and women being renewed by the gospel. We're casting off the clothes of our old self and putting on the clothes of Christ's righteousness. He puts it aside. He leaves everything behind and steps into the path of following Jesus Christ. And so today, if you're listening, this is a call to you. This is not just a heartwhelming story. Jesus is calling you. For those who have not trusted upon Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you need to hear these words Recorded here in Mark, take heart, get up. He's calling you. He is stopping the show. He is silencing the noise, and he is saying, come to me. Come to me. You're broken. You're rejected. You're alone. This Christ brings healing. And so the call today is to throw off the cloak of your former self and spring up by the power of the Holy Spirit and run to him. Run to him. But I also know that perhaps there are those of us who have been on the path for a while. We've been on the journey of following Jesus Christ like these disciples for years. And we too are caught in the middle of wonder and fear. At one time, this whole Christianity thing made so much sense. Today, You're disillusioned. And while I I can't explain everything that is going on in your life, and I can't explain everything that you're experiencing inside, I can tell you, with the authority of God's word, who goes before you. And today you need to consider him who is leading the way. He may not lead you where you thought you were going. He may not lead you where you think you deserve to go he is leading you on the path that leads to life and freedom. Friend, stay the course. Look at me. Stay the course. Our good Savior goes before you. Amen?